Hello and welcome to the Stushi, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Derek Healy and Callum Ross to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. But first, a summary of the week's biggest national and international politics stories read by Chris Finn. The United Nations says more than two and a half million refugees are fleeing the war in Ukraine. High Commissioner Filippo Grandi also estimates around two million are displaced inside the country invaded by Russia last month. Charity Advice Direct Scotland is warning people to beware of scammers trying to exploit the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine. Telltale signs of a scam include long, convoluted web or email addresses with characters that look out of place. Also look out for spelling errors that genuine organisations and businesses are unlikely to have on their websites or marketing materials. More than 100,000 extra deaths have taken place in private homes in the UK since the COVID-19 pandemic began, new analysis by Hospice UK shows. Extra deaths, known as excess deaths, are the number of deaths that are above the average recorded in previous years. Thanks, Chris. Let's start with the latest developments in the sometimes tragic, sometimes mind-boggling goings-on in the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson. Listeners will of course be familiar with the phrase about a week being a long time in politics. Well, cast your minds back a couple of months and Tories were lining up to call for Boris Johnson's immediate resignation. One of them was Scottish Tory leader Douglas Ross. Boost forward to today and Mr Ross, the MP for Murray, has done that much-loved political cliché and U-turned. Our colleague Adele Merson got up early and went to Peterhead Fish Market to talk to him about this very subject today, so you know it must be serious. Adele is lost somewhere still in the um, in the Buchan area, but of course you can read for yourself what's been happening by hopping on the P&J and Courier Online straight after this. But Callum, you've been following this saga too. Remind us what we're talking about here. Why is Douglas Ross... Why was Douglas Ross so angry with his boss in the first place? <laughs> Douglas Ross often comes across as a quite... Angry, I think, and he doesn't. He that was one of the criticisms of him uh, <laughs> at the election uh, last year during the debates and stuff. And also, when he was a councillor in Murray back in those days, True. he fell out um, quite a few times with his uh, colleagues in the Conservative groups. Uh, uh, and we've seen him seen him at odds with UK ministers in the recent past as well. I mean, I, I'm not party to any inside kind of information on this, but I strongly suspect when he Douglas Ross first met Boris Johnson after. Um, becoming leader of the Scottish Tories in 2020, he he would have made it clear to him that if this if the Tories were going to have any chance of any kind of success in Scotland, he was going to have to kick Boris Johnson and the Westminster Party from time to time, you know, in order to, to distance themselves from their counterparts in London. And I think Boris Johnson probably would have understood that. He knows he's incredibly unpopular in Scotland, so it makes sense uh, for Mr Ross to uh, stick the boot in from time to time if it benefits the party. Now, that being said, I doubt the Prime Minister would have expected Mr Ross to have weighed in quite so heavily, demanding uh, his resignation. At what, you know, As you said, it's it was a really sensitive moment for the Tory leader over the Partygate allegations. These were obviously claims that multiple gatherings, events, celebrations um, were held at Downing Street during the pandemic lockdowns when you know restrictions were in place restrictions put into place uh, by Boris Johnson's government um you know the public backlash against the prime minister was so strong uh you know at the start of the year that Mr Ross probably calculated that um the pm was likely to be on his way out anyway but um that hasn't happened 
Yeah, of course. Although there remains, mm-hmm. it, it was it was visceral. It was it was every day. It was across broadcast, print, everywhere, constantly, all day, and um, it, the the reaction of of outrage. You know, people coming forward all the time saying, uh, with real life examples of I, I couldn't go to my my you know husband, dad, wife's granny's funeral because I was following the rules and I was at home, and then the pictures of folk knocking back some uh, drink in the back garden of Downing Street uh, jarred with with everything that everyone had been had been doing all that time. And it is remarkable how things have moved on a bit. And is this just another political calculation then? It's not being talked about so much and it's a bit awkward and there's an election coming up in May and how am I supposed to be on the doorstep with the Prime Minister still in power? Uh, you know, is this a political calculation or something? Well, I think it's probably a bit of both. Obviously, um, there are advisors of both men would have been keen to um, give the impression that that the rift was being healed otherwise you know they've they've got no chance of making any sort of um, progress in Scotland Um, we saw when the PM visited Scotland last month that he was praising Douglas Ross for his achievements since uh, since taking charge of the party in Scotland Um, even though they didn't meet so I guess it's not surprising that we're seeing more steps towards a sort of reconciliation uh, uh, and and there'll probably be more at the Scottish Conservative com- conference in uh, Aberdeen, which is, is upcoming. Douglas Ross has obviously also highlighted the situation in Ukraine. There is a bit of a tradition in this country that domestic disputes are kind of put to one side to an extent during an international crisis. So I think that possibly is part of it as well. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right, all these things together, um, it's obviously been judged that this this might be a time to try to draw some kind of line under it all, and, you know, they might just about get away with it, but their opponents are still going to bring it up, and uh, yeah. I doubt that relations are, are very rosy behind the scenes. No, uh, there's been a bit of an about turn across the Scottish Conservative group as well, figures like Murdo Fraser and others saying Douglas Ross is completely right to be saying what he's saying right now, which is a, a far cry from what he'd, he'd been saying previously. Douglas, speaking to Adele this morning, was saying, you know, right now is not the time to be looking to replace a prime minister. One of the things this paves the way for, as you just mentioned, is the what would have been a surprise appearance just yesterday for the PM in, in Aberdeen. Um, it was a big problem for them up to this point. Um, Boris was persona non grata, as he might have said in Latin himself, and he was going to maybe turn up by video link, but now he can pound the stage like he, he wants to, I can imagine him making a joke about it, you know, perhaps trying to self-deprecating type of shtick, endearing himself to the Tory faithful, but we'll see the actual plans for the Conservative Party conference in Aberdeen aren't, aren't set out yet. And on that note, I should probably say we intend to bring you a Tory special next week from about the conference, teeing up the conference in the Granite City, which is bound to be good value. And it's not just the Conservatives getting back into the swing of in-person conferences, Labour got it rolling last week with a gathering in the great city of Glasgow. I was there, so was Courier political editor Derek Healy. Derek, this was the first time that we'd managed to see Labour politicians in their natural habitat for some time. Give us a summary, paint a, a picture for us. What was the, the mood in an Star Wars ranks? Well, I think, it was a, I think it was a very positive mood, first of all. Um, I think as you've touched on, just people being able to get back together for the first time in so long um, made it quite a positive atmosphere coming in. 
One of the things I heard being discussed quite a lot during the conference was this idea of, of Anasawa being quite popular, but how do you turn that popularity into electability? I mean, there's a warm welcome for him coming into the conference. There's talks already about how there's been this big jump in funding. It's quite interesting, actually, to hear the comparisons. Uh, I attended a, a fringe event where it was quite open, um, the sort of discussion about the time under Richard Leonard not being such a happy time, them struggling to attract funding, um, and under Jeremy Corbyn as well. And it was interesting to hear that there was very little comeback to that. There was very little argument against that. Um, it seemed There seemed to be a feeling that things are moving in the sort of right direction for Labour at the moment under Anna Sarwar, that they, they can kind of get behind them. Obviously, the council elections are going to be the very first sort of test of that, whether things are moving in the right direction. But even before... Um, that's coming up, you know, we, we heard Anna Sarwar talk about how he is planning on the longer term, this is not just about months and weeks, this is about years, um, but still be, it'll be interesting to see how the sort of things we saw being discussed, how that is going to play with voters, how much they are listening, you know, that, that was a big problem before with Labour in terms of people tuning in to hear what they've got to say, um, that seems to be going in, in a better direction under Anna Sarwar, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in May. Uh, pers personally, I thought it was it was useful to get back into normal conversations with people, um, see how the interactions sort of told a, a story of their own. Keir Starmer was wondering about the stalls. You could see him interacting with people and ask Sarwar's speech, which was a bit of a mammoth. Uh, you know, speaking to the the MSPs and and the, what you mentioned about they were they, they were clearly trying to draw lines wherever they could about what happened before and what's going on next. And it was remarkable how little. Labour Party conferences of old, they were basically, you turned up and you watched the party pick a fight with itself, mm. completely implode and write a week's worth of terrible headlines for themselves, even when something else was happening that they could have focused on instead. And that didn't happen this time. I mean, it's it was it's a small affair. It's a Scottish Labour Party conference. It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was exactly buzzing with, with um, excitement. I mean, it still was quite low key and COVID is obviously still you know, making things a little bit different, difficult. They still have a mountain to climb, but were there any signs that they're they're actually going to convert any of that energy and an Asarwar's enthusiasm into something tangible? I mean, what what are the signs ahead of May? It's just going to be another one where Labour just attack from both sides and don't make any headway themselves. I think it's tough to quantify. I mean, I think um, it was interesting to hear Anna Sarwar talking both on, on our podcast and in general about how they are kind of opening up the floor to different styles of candidates, to different ideas of what they can kind of take forward to try and revitalise the party. I think it's very early days. So, I mean, I think in terms of what are we going to see in May, is it going to be a massive change? Uh, I'm not so sure. The kind of positive sign, and, and this is what people seem to be quite welcoming of, is that they do seem to be listening to their own members. They do seem to be willing to open up a little bit to listening to people from outside as well. Whether or not that's going to work, I mean, there's been plenty of parties in the past that have said they're going to listen and they don't, so who knows? But I suppose time will tell. Hmm. Callum, you're you're a man of the north, like me. Uh, the, the proper north, I should say, not that northern powerhouse that they talk about down south. It's fair to say Labour have, have not been a major fixture in regional politics beyond maybe Aberdeen, really for some time. There's an election in May, as we've said. I mean, are, are they forever stuck behind the SNP and Tory battle? And whatever remains of a, a Lib Dem tradition in, in rural areas in particular, can can they break out basically? Can they make any any kind of headway, do you think? I think they've they've obviously got to hope they can. Um, like you say, 
Labour does have some kind of history. If you look at Scotland cities, you kind of see, I always think of it as kind of, there's two, fall into two categories. Basically, you've got your Glasgow and Dundee that were, you know, rock solid Labour forever. And then um, obviously fairly solid SNP since the the, um, 2014 referendum. And then you've got, you know, a, a, a much bigger mix in Edinburgh. And then you've got the likes of Aberdeen and Inverness where there's not been the same degree of dominance and other parties have been able to uh, win seats here and there. When I uh, first started writing about politics in Aberdeen, you know, you'll remember Andy, it was, it was Anne Begg and Frank Doran were the uh, MPs for Aberdeen North and Aberdeen South. Uh, Labour um, MPs, you had um, Lewis MacDonald in Aberdeen Central at Holyrood um, and David Stewart uh, held the Inverness seat as well for a while yeah. and and you know Labour did quite well in Aberdeen City Council uh, initially uh, in the kind of late 90s early very early 2000s and um, they're in power at the moment although they're they're not the biggest party um, I think they might be the third biggest party so you know there's a foothold there yeah. and I think if and when Labour are going to recover they can win seats in these kind of places uh, you would think but they also they also need to win seats in the more traditional um among among the more traditional supporters and the likes of, of well glasgow yeah. particularly west central scotland i'd encourage anyone on that point who, who wants to uh, a bit more insight into the sort of labor party fortunes to skip back an episode to our labor conference special last week courier editor david clegg's interview with anasarwar I thought was good. It shed loads of light on on the challenges that lie ahead, and there's some really good personal reflections from Anas in there too. Um, and we hope to repeat that feat with Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross next week. There's a party here we we've not mentioned uh, actually uh, happening right now. The um, as we speak, the green the Green Party are uh, are meeting um, in Stirling. It's their first um, conference in person for a while, and it's their first conference since being a party of government as well just um i mean it's, it's it's worth noting that as we speak they're they're preparing to meet and so we will certainly be bringing you a lot more about actually what's been going on there um in print and on, on online if you want to log into the courier or pnj titles in the days ahead um there's one other party we've not mentioned yet and that's alex salmon's alba party and the reason for that is because they they sank at the Holyrood election and Mr. Salmon has gone very quiet. His his show on Russia Today, or RT, is suspended while, um, at his own behest, apparently, while the government of his broadcaster of choice is bombing civilians in Ukraine. There's there's no two ways about it here, really, Derek. He needs to formally abandon that platform, right? Well, if he ever wants to... It depends what you, what you want Alba to be. If you want him to be a party that could one day hope to have some elected representatives that are coming through elections as opposed to people just switching their allegiances, then yeah, I mean, I think you probably do need to have some kind of look of respectability about you. Alex Salmond has suspended his talk show on RT for the moment. So, I mean, I, I don't know the details, but I imagine there's an awful lot of money behind being on the station. Um, that probably plays into the... The decision to some extent to suspend it for now and maybe see what happens, maybe see what happens over the kind of coming months. Um, he suggested that they don't kind of start it back up when there's peace, but a bit like you know, the idea of having an independence referendum when COVID is finished or the pandemic is over, 
Um, it's pretty hard to get a tangible thought of what that actually means. I mean, it could be years and years and years until the situation in Ukraine is totally resolved. So I think at some point they could have a tough decision to make. And if, if you know, it certainly doesn't look as if it's going to be resolved before the council elections. But in terms of future elections, if, there's, if he wants any kind of hope of convincing voters to, you know, to give them time and to, get, to give them a listen to what they've got to say, um, having that hang over them, makes it incredibly difficult, I think. One of the, the, the few times I've seen Alex Salmond say something publicly on, on social media, at least, was actually just in response to something Nicola Sturgeon had said about, you know, NATO and uh, potentially potentially closing the skies and he wasn't very happy with that. And he was talking about, it seems like he, he really only wants to, to say something when he feels that he's unhappy with the direction that his old party's been taken. Mm-hmm. You, you've been looking at some of these wider attitudes and and how it's affecting people and a bit of an investigation last week which um which shed quite a lot of light on the the fringes of political opinion what what can you tell us about what's happening uh, within the Alpa party and and within the activists that are that are um that have flocked towards you know Alex Salmond and, and his movement since leaving the SNP or being tempted away as part of the independence movement? Well, I think the investigation itself and what we found maybe kind of speaks to some of the messiness within the party. So very, very briefly, um, people can, can find the article in both the Courier and Press and Journal websites, but this was a, a former Polish politician who was being touted to stand for Alba in the council elections in May. Um, he had a background, we managed to uncover some articles that are written under his name and shared from his Twitter account, which were appearing to justify the invasion of Ukraine as self-defence and also um, appeared to be calling for the border of Poland to be moved into the, the territory currently held by Ukraine as well. So these were quite... Uh, strong articles uh, and certainly interesting views. Um, I think you could definitely describe them as being pro-Kremlin views. Um, and at a time where I think the whole world is, is totally shocked by what's actually happening in Ukraine, um, to have that kind of attached to the party in any way is obviously not a great look. Um, the individual involved was, uh, as, a party, as a party activist, as a party member, there was some confusion because um, I think Aberdeen Alba, their, their Twitter account and a few others had been um, saying that this guy was a prospective candidate. Um, Alba now say that was a misapprehension and there was confusion there um, and I don't think anyone really knew how that was all panning out. They now say he was never a candidate, he is not a candidate now. But yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely, if you look on social media and you look at some of the people who are setting out their stall and their position around Alex Salmond, around Alba, there is a small contingent of them who are tweeting stuff and sharing stuff um, that seems to be borderline pro-Kremlin. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely that element there, and I'm sure that'll be really uncomfortable for, for Alex Salmond and the leadership of, yeah. of the party. I was just thinking, as you were speaking there, about the the, the political reaction and how swift it's been, the sanctions. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in, in my memory, I can't remember anything quite like this. Um, the sanctions on on anything remotely Russian, it would seem, but also then how quickly it filtered through uh, all all levels of of, of Scottish politics, yeah. from you know Nicola Sturgeon down to local councils. Um, actually, just made me think about uh, Callum, your stuff that you you know heaps of investigative work in the past week or so about um, how. The sanctions are, are affecting all sorts of things and the, the, the influence of Russian money. You had a couple of articles in the past couple of weeks about the pension funds, for example, um, and a, 
a remarkable one again this morning about even flights out of Inverness Airport is, is now becoming a thing. Is it? I mean, can you give us an idea of what the impact is on just sort of fairly humdrum stuff uh, since the, the the Russians invaded Ukraine? I mean, yeah, it, it, people's pensions and things like that are now being uh, under the spotlight. Uh, that's right, Andy. I mean, I've been um, waiting for a response for about a week from Orkney Islands Council because they've got uh, some money. Their pension fund uh, has some money in the, the Russian spare bank, um, uh, Russia's biggest bank, which has obviously been hit with uh, sanctions. So, you know, even a pension pot in Orkney is connected to Vladimir Putin's regime in, in some ways. And yeah, yeah. we've seen the, a controversy about um, a, a flight out of Inverness Airport, which seemed to have um, been happened. It went to Russia after a ban was introduced, kind of basically a few hours after a ban was introduced mm-hmm. on uh, on such flights. Uh, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's 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 pretty incredible. You've got all kinds of organisations probably um, scurrying about uh, trying to see what their exposure is in terms of Russia, the connections there. Oil and gas industry obviously has um, uh, major links to uh, oil and gas companies in, in Russia. We've seen BP and, and Shell um, yeah. uh, kind of taking, um, making statements uh, uh, there as well. So yeah, it's, it's um, I think that's going to continue too, isn't it, uh, uh, over the coming weeks? Yeah, well... On that note, if, if you were on that flight from Inverness to Moscow and, and you, you want to give us a ring, yeah, get in touch, all the usual channels, and we'll, we'll have a chat. We'll, we'll leave it for there, and we'll, we'll come back um, shinier and happier next week with uh, our Tory conference special. Until then, thanks to Derek Healy, Callan Ross, and producer Morvan McIntyre, and of course to you for listening. Cheerio! The Stushi is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The Stushi today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow Stushi Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.